Welcome to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle McAloon, your host. You can find me and other great Catholic radio programming on ArchangelRadio.com. I am a Twitter bird. You can find me at Twitter at Michelle McAloon1. And today we have a real treat. We have a titan of Catholic publishing, Father Joseph Fessio himself. He is head of Ignatius Press, and it is such an honor to have you on the show. Welcome, Father. Thank you, Michelle. I guess if you get old enough, you become a titan, so... No, 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 sir. You've been a Titan for a long time. <laughs> you, you, I think, have done as much, if not more, than a Pope has in the Catholic world. And that's just, that's the Catholic world, not just Catholic publishing. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get started in Catholic publishing? Well, it's a long story. Uh, and as you get older, stories get longer, you know, Michelle. <laughs> Basically, uh, when I was a young Jesuit, what they call a scholastic, that is not ordained, still in the seminary, I was teaching at uh, University of Santa Clara in Santa Clara, California. And I began a program called Project 50. We went and got 50 young students, eighth grade students from East San Jose, which is a very poor area. We brought them on campus and gave them some remedial work and prepared them for college. In any event, those were the late 60s, and uh, it was kind of hippie time. Started to learn to play guitar, and I tried to grow a beard, you know. And, oh, no, right. Uh, and But the beard was not very successful, and it also upset my superior, who was an old kind of hardcore army chaplain, Jesuit, Father Copeland. I went up to see the provincial who was a friend of mine, and I said, look, I, I'm, I'm going to shave my beard. I, I, I'm not going to try and be a rebel, you know. I just want to be a good Jesuit. And he said, well, have you ever thought about going to, to Europe for your theology? And I said, oh, no, I haven't. Do you want me to think about it? He said, yeah, think about it. So on the way back from San Francisco to Santa Clara, I decided to go to France for my theology. Fourvier, which is a Jesuit theological studies house uh, near Lyon, Lyons, France. And there I met Father de Lubac, Henri de Lubac, one of the great men of the church sure. of the 20th, wow. 21st century. He became my mentor. When it was time for me to do my doctoral studies, he suggested I go to Regensburg and do my doctorate on Hondras on Balthazar under the direction of Father Ratzinger. And so I did. And so I was in Europe there, and I had these three great luminous, if you will, stars of the constellation of theology of the late 20th century, de Lubac, Ratzinger, and Balthazar, I really learned what deep, deep Catholic theology was. At the same time, Michelle, I had never drunk when I was a young man until I entered the Society of Jesus. Well, yeah. Uh, well, even, you, know, <laughs> e e e you know, even then I didn't, actually, because we had wine at meals, but I didn't drink wine. But when I got to France, I began drinking wine and realizing it was a wonderful compliment to a meal. And when I got to Germany, Bavaria, I discovered beer for the first time. Yes. I discovered 13 kinds of beer, not brands of beer, but 13 kinds of beer. Märzen, Bach, Doppelbach, Pilsen, you know, all these things. Honey on the tongue. And so when I came back to the United States for ordination in 1972, I had my first American beer. I will not mentioned the brand. It's a very famous brand. And I spat it out and I said, 
if you're going to call this beer, I need another name for what I was drinking in Bavaria because the two different categories, different genres. Why am I telling you that story? Well, when I came back after ordination and after my doctorate, I was teaching at the University of San Francisco, and I was also giving retreats to religious sisters. And I would, I'd be quoting de Lubac, you know, I'd be quoting Balthasar and Adrian von Speyer and, and Bouillet and Ratzinger. And in one of the question and answer sessions, a sister, raise your hands, well, Father, you, you're quoting all these uh, European theologians. Who, who are the great American theologians? Well, I told her the beer story, you know, about when I had tasted beer in Bavaria and then I tasted beer in America, they weren't the same thing. And I said, you know something? We don't have any great theologians. In fact, we don't have any theologians. I studied none of these people who I think are the really theologians. What we have here is something different. You can't call them by the same name. And they're good. Uh, and they do a lot of good work, pastoral theology, some moral theology. But the beauty, the depth, the breadth, the knowledge of tradition, culture, was just something uh, was set apart. In any event, partly as a result of that, we decided to start Ignatius Press in 1978 as a way of translating these authors and making them available to an American readership. So that's how we started Ignatius Press. Our first two books were Heart of the World by Hans-Rosen and Balthasar and Woman in the Church by Louis Bouillet. And after that, we became sort of the principal American publishers of the works of Ratzinger, de Lubac, Balthasar, and Bouillet. Okay, I have several questions here. First sure. question, do you think the beer makes the theology better in Europe? It's a correlation, and I can't prove causality. Okay. But I think <laughs> if I did a statistical chart, what they call the R-square number would be very high. Okay. Uh, there you go. High correlation. What about since that, have we seen the emergence of any great theologians in the United States? Uh, we've had some good theologians. I wouldn't call them great theologians, and part of the reason for that is what de Tocqueville discovered in 1830 when he visited the United States that we're a democracy and we have education for everybody. We try to do that, you know. Right, sure. And, and, and Europe has always been kind of a, an aristocracy where you get, you know, little Mozart is writing a concert at age four. Why? Because he grows up in a musical family. That doesn't really happen in the United States, you know. Sure. And so I, I just think that the, the at least in the 20th century, the culture there was so broad. I mean, music, philosophy, history, art, everything. When I was in Germany, uh, learning German, I used to turn the radio on, and there'd be these high-level theological debates on the radio, on AM, you know what I mean? Now, in the United States, we've got Catholic radio, and we have some theology on the radio, which is pretty good. And we have EWTN, uh, both, but even that's not real deep theology, usually, so I, I just think that the the, the matrix, uh, the the ambiance you need for a really tremendous theology, the sense of history and, and knowledge of the fathers and knowledge of languages, it's easier in Europe than it is in the United States. I agree with you. I studied canon law in France, and my education is very different than my American colleagues. American colleagues, they're more about application and in France, it was more about the depth, about the roots of canon law. So it's a different approach, different society. So it's very different. I think where uh, Americans uh, have done uh, well in theologies, in biblical theology, 
And in going beyond or using the historical method, which came out of Germany especially, but was, I think, misused and overused, you know, we have our Scott Hahn and others like him who really are great biblical theologians. So that's been our strength, it seems to me. All right. How have you seen Catholic publishing? You know what? I'm going to break this into two parts. I want to talk to you about publishing in general, and then I want to talk to you about Catholic publishing. How have you seen publishing change since you started? Publishing in general, I'm not sure how that's changed. I mean, books are books, and there'll always be books, and e-books have not replaced print books, as people sometimes had predicted. But in Catholic publishing, again, God has blessed me very wonderfully in Providence. And when I came back to the United States, it was 10 years after the council, the great Catholic publishing houses were in decline. Sheed and Ward, Benzinger, Brown, and the whole Newman Press and so on. And there was kind of a, a vacuum there. So when we started in 1978, you know, we became kind of the small as we were. We were the sort of the premier Catholic publisher of serious Catholic works. And since that time, over you know, a 40 year period, there's been a renaissance, it seems to me, in Catholic publishing. And we have, you know, we've got uh, Sophia Institute Press, and you've got uh, our Sunny Visitor was always there, but it's kind of had a resurgence. You had Tannis had a resurgence, and uh, Angelica was a new press. And so I, I'm happy to see it because we can't publish all the good Catholic books. And Catholic publishing, like everything Catholic, I think, has flourished since the 80s. I think you live in Europe. There's a lot of very fine groups and people in Europe. Germany, look at Germany, it's a disaster, and yet there's a lot of good people there. But in America, look, we have 600 Catholic radio stations. We've got a pro-life movement that's unmatched in the whole world. And we've got lay people running blogs and publications and things like that. We've got EWTN. We've got the Augustine Institute and, and Form, you know, which is like Catholic Netflix. I just think it's a time of great enthusiasm. Now I won't call it a golden age, but I, it's, it's an age of the lady in the Catholic Church in the United States. I, I'm very happy about it. Yeah, I would argue that the United States of America is one of the most Catholic nations in the world. And I know that is that doesn't seem like it makes sense. But for our energy and our enthusiasm, in many ways, we lead the world in that in that in that Catholic creativity and what we are producing. Not all of it's perfect, but for, for the energy that we have, the Catholic energy we have, we are phenomenal. And I think a lot of Catholics do not understand that about the United States. No, I, I agree with you. And unfortunately, our culture is going the other way. But that just means we have a, a greater call. Uh, what Ratzinger discussed it in 1969 uh, in a book on the church faith in the future. And he had a chapter there about the future of the church. And he said, look, the church is going to decline in its influence, but it's going to become stronger. There's going to be creative communities of people who are really intentional. And when the culture finally gets exhausted, the church will be there for them, you know, and then we have to do that. And that's, I think that's where we are absolutely headed. Let me ask you a question. Are people reading more than they read before? How, what have you seen in trends as far as are people buying more books? What is the trend in publishing? Well, Michelle, yes, two interesting questions there. Are they reading more or are they buying more books? I, I don't know whether they're reading more, you know, because I can't tell what they do when they get the book. Okay. Uh, 
but I can say that over the last 20 years, we have sold about 2 million books a year, and it's been pretty constant. Okay. Uh, and other publishers have come online now, and they're publishing books. So I, I think that the Catholic reading habits among Catholics who are serious about their faith have been pretty constant. And we're having a lot of you know, homeschooled families now and larger Catholic families are coming back into vogue and new Catholic schools. You look at Dale Alquist and the, the Chesterton Academy program, there's over 40 of them now. I don't see publishing going away and I see Catholics getting a lot of good nourishment. Also, Lighthouse Catholic Media, which has kiosks in over half the parishes in the country. So you've got little booklets and CDs, you know, and DVDs. Wow. One of the things that I have really noticed is just a flourishing of Catholic fiction. And actually, Ignatius Press has sort of been leading the way. They've come up with some great, great fiction, great genres of fiction. And there's a lot of Catholic presses coming out now, very small, Chrism Press, like you said, Angelico, Wise Blood Books. They're these small presses that are coming up with really some very, really solid work. No, it's it's wonderful. And uh, you think Michael O'Brien, for example, is one of sure. our wonderful authors. And we kind of started with him. And now Fiala Di Maria, her novels and things like that. They're well-written. They stand by themselves as good novels, but they're deeply Catholic in their culture. Sure. Beautiful. And you really are. You're seeing a flourishing with it. And one of it, too, is I think there's a lot of hope for the future of Catholic writing with St. Thomas University, their writing program that they're doing, their Masters of Fine Arts in Catholic writing. So there is definitely a spark here in the United States, a yes. Catholic spark. Oh, so, And you're part of it, Michelle. Catholic radio is part of this thing, you know? Well, I hope so. I, you know, I hope so. I think it's a form of evangelization. If we can get one person to ask one question, I think that is how we begin evangelization. What does this mean? Who am I? Who is God? What is my purpose here? And that is evangelization in many ways. Just like I think we need person-to-person education and not just books and Zoom calls and things like that. Likewise, we need books as well as radio and television so that when you're driving your car, you can't be reading a book. You might be listening to one, you know, or a podcast or something like that. You listen to Catholic radio. Or you're washing the dishes, maybe, or something like that. But what Catholic Radio can do and does do, and you're doing it right now, is encourage people to read good books. And then when you have the time, then you can pick up a book and read it. Sure, sure. Can I ask you a question as a Jesuit? Sure. I read your biography, and I mean, you're very orthodox. You're very, I mean, you are very serious, very orthodox Catholic. How how have the Jesuits earn the reputation of not being Orthodox Catholics? Well, I'm not the public face of the Society of Jesus uh, in the United States. I'll not mention the priest who is, but you may know who it is. Yes, we do. So there's there's different views. And after the council, there was a, a lot of division within the Society of Jesus. And I will say this about my superiors. They've been very kind. They've been very helpful. They've been supportive and generous. And they've allowed for a certain diversity, which includes having me around. So yeah, my views are different from a lot of other Jesuits. Although, I mean, I in the Jesuit community that I'm part of, at St. Ignatius College Prepper in San Francisco, I mean, these are good men. I, I feel, I call them my friends. And we, you know, we disagree on some things, but they're, they're doing good work for the church. But we're not one in mind and heart like we should be. That's for sure. Well, also, you know, the church is a big tent. 
and it has room for every, I believe it has room for everybody from the traditional Latin mass to Opus Dei to unorthodox Jesuits or to, it has, it's Jesus Christ's body is capacious. And well, but it does, it doesn't have room for people who speak publicly in, in the name of the church who teach a, against Catholic doctrine and Catholic tradition. There's not a room for that. Uh, they can be in the church in a sense, but they're, they're not fully united with the church. And just like I would say, there's no room for Catholic politicians who promote abortion in the Catholic church. And they're welcome to leave the church. They don't have to be Catholics, but they can't call themselves Catholic, really, and at the same time promote something which is so heinous as the destruction of, of unborn, innocent human life. So it's not that big of a tent in one sense. Big tent because all sinners can join. But you know something? You have to admit that you're a sinner before you can join. That's good. Yes, you're absolutely right. Let me ask you a question. If you hadn't been a Jesuit, if you hadn't been a Catholic publisher, what would you have done in your life? Well, I didn't want to be a Jesuit or a publisher. Or a okay. Priest. I, I was, a, from a very early age, I wanted to get married and have a family. And I even had the date picked out. It was going to be June 3rd in 1962. Because I would be 21 on in, on that, and it would be a month of June was for marriages, and three is my favorite number. And I was very attracted to young women, and uh, still am, as a matter of fact. Okay. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be careful about that. That's right. Then, uh, you know, God changed my plan, and so I became a priest. But I think I wanted to be an engineer. I studied engineering. I love science. I love engineering. I I think I would have been a pretty good lawyer, and. I would enjoy doing that. Okay. One last question. What are you reading right now? Well, you know, I'm reading manuscripts, you know, the, the, for preacher books. I don't do as much reading as I, as I should, but I'm actually, there, there's two books that we have published not too long ago by the same author, Michael Heseman. He's a German without a doctorate, and he's got a book on Jesus of Nazareth and one on Mary of Nazareth, and he's an archaeologist, basically, or historian of archaeology. And he goes through, you know, all the historic historical archaeological, you know, footprints of Jesus and of Mary, and it's fascinating. So I'm reading that. But then we just published a book, a republished book by Henri de Debach called The Church, Paradox, and Mystery. And I'm rereading that. And I, it brings me to tears. It's so beautiful. I mean, uh, it just you read that, and you see this man's great knowledge, his love of the church. So anyway, those are the things I'm reading. What else is here? Oh, I've I've got on my desk a book. I'm surprised we sold so many of these things. This is a fifty dollar book, but it's a Catholic introduction of the Bible, Old Testament by Berg, Bergsman Pitrick, and this is such a wonderful way to kind of. As you're doing the readings for Mass on Sunday, something like that, you go and read about the book of Deuteronomy or about uh, Isaiah. Uh, really wonderful stuff. So that's what I'm reading. That's great. That is, that's great. I've actually interviewed Michael Hussman. And you know what? I'm glad I heard his book about Mary was out and I'll do an interview with him. Oh, do that. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, he good. really is good. On a summer day, what is your favorite genre to read? On a summer day... I am out in a vineyard. I have a little vineyard, uh, and I'm checking my vines. And, I, you know, I go back and I love to read Chesterton, and I read Belloc and C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and those kinds of things. Okay. 
Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I, I yeah. you know, I really like that Father Gabriel series, the mystery. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a that, great that's series. Just Israel, yeah. <laughs> that's great. It's great. There's some great books that have come out of uh, the fiction out of Ignatius Press. There's three books that people I think are among our greatest books. One is it's not fiction. It's called Shadow of His Wings, about this German priest of just an incredible story. It seems like it's fiction. And then another one called Memory for Wonders, which is about this woman born of an atheist family in France who becomes a Carmelite nun. Just a great story. But then, of the novels of Michael O'Brien, everybody seems to agree that the best of his novels is called Island of the World. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I love that. I lived in Croatia. I love that novel. Yes, yes. Did you like it? Oh, well, uh, yeah, I think it's his best novel, and it's uh, he's a hero in Croatia. He, they, they bring him over there to give, to give talks and things like that, you know. That book still stays with me. I, I just That's an incredible book. Yeah, well, it, it, Eva Fontaine, who works here at Ignatius Press, and she runs the West Coast Walk for Life. She started that years ago. When she read it, she said, you know, it makes you want to be a better person. It does. It's <laughs> yeah. great. It's great. Well, Father Fessio, this has been such an honor to have you on. It's been a joy, it's been a joy Michelle. Can we can we have a blessing from you? Sure. Almighty God, we ask a blessing on Michelle and the whole network, those who are listening to this show, and all those involved in Catholic Radio and the Catholic Apostolate. Benedictio Diana Potentis Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti, Descendus Supervos, et Maniat Semper. Amen. Amen. Father Fessio. All right. Thank you so much. I really God bless you. God bless you. Keep up the good work. Okay, I will. All right. right. Thank you, Father Fessio. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle McAloon, your host. You can find my podcast and other great Catholic radio programming on archangelradio.com. I am a Twitter bird, so you can find me at Michelle McAloon1. Thanks for listening. God bless.